0: All right, we are, I forget, five or six weeks away from Easter, and we're starting in Isaiah 43. We're going to go Isaiah 43 to 66 in five weeks, which is pretty ambitious and fun, but also a little bit of grace and mercy, because you could spend like five years in Isaiah and forget who you are, right? But Isaiah, so some, uh, I'll just say liberal, (laughs) liberal theologians, um, they can't reconcile that the things that Isaiah wrote in 40 through 55 actually came true. And so they say that Isaiah 40 through 55 was written later and then stuck back in there to prove that it was true. And um, the thing that I don't get about that is you, you, if you believe that, you can't believe any of the Bible is true because there's so much prophecy. There's so much stuff that God said in advance of it happening. Um, even if you go back to Genesis 3, where God says to the devil... That you're going to nip at his at at mankind's heel, but he is going to crush your skull. That's a prophecy of Easter, and Jesus rising from the dead. Um, it's the whole nature the whole nature of it is prophecy. Um, the other thing about that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, before they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was this really um, compelling argument that Isaiah 53 was so accurate about Jesus that it was added later. And then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they established that those were dated before Christ, that they were older than Jesus, right? They were from B.C. And then they started reading the Dead Sea Scrolls and there's Isaiah 53 in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there you've got your ace in the hole, proof that... That prophecy is a thing. That that God does know what's going to happen ahead of time. So why do I bring all that up? That's a lot of what in this section God is talking about. He is establishing that a prophet is a prophet. And that God knows the future. And that sometimes God tells his prophets the future. And you can confirm that it happens. So in here, um, starting in Isaiah 43... God is talking about all these good things he's going to do. They, you know, he's been talking about this discipline. You guys turn to me, or I'm going to drag you off with fish hooks in your lips. Uh, you guys turn to me, or you're going to be you're eating your own flesh and blood, because you're going to be starving to death. Now, he didn't want all of that to happen. He did not. And that wasn't even the way that he wanted it to happen. But he was going to let Assyria... He was just going to turn Israel over to Assyria. And he let Assyria be free to sin however they wanted to sin. And they became really, really corrupt and really evil. And that was how they were themselves when they hauled off Israel. Does that make sense? Um, they, they were as bad as they were. So they haul off Israel. God says, look, you guys, it's going to be really bad. And you didn't turn to me. And Babylonian captivity is going to happen. You're going to get hauled off to Babylon. Some of you are going to get hauled off to Assyria. Then the Babylonians are going to destroy Assyria. Then the Persians are going to destroy Babylon. And you're going to be in the mess of all that. But when it's all over, I want you to know I love you. I love you very, very much. And this is like um, reassuring them. That this invasion and this discipline doesn't mean God hates them. That this is a discipline thing. Uh, You, I mean, we may all know what happens when kids, when they aren't disciplined, right? You might know adults. I have things in my own life that that still have tyranny over me because I don't have discipline over this or that, right? Hence the uh, Philly steak and cheese. I ate that whole thing. It was mammoth, right? Okay, no. Um, So this is a tale. There we go. Um, God's saying you're going to get discipline. Discipline's going to happen, but it doesn't mean I don't love you, right? You're grounded from the video games this week. Doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means... You got to respect your mother, right? Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, You shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. A little scary thing that would happen if you heard a prophet say that, and you were Jewish, and he said, you'll pass through waters and I'll be with you. You'd be like, oh yeah, the Red Sea, Moses, he was there. You'll go through the rivers, and they won't overwhelm you. When when Joshua led The the next generation into the promised land and the Levites went down to the banks of the Jordan that was at flood stage and the Jordan stopped flowing. And it says the water stacked up like a wall and they crossed the Jordan River. That was their Red Sea crossing. That was their moment. So you're like, yes, God, you were with Moses in the Red Sea. You were with Joshua crossing the Jordan And then he says, when you walk through fire, you will not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. That hasn't happened yet. And so you might think, oh boy, what's coming? What's what's about to happen, right? Um, What's really exciting, we don't know if this is what he was talking about or not. But in the book of Daniel, that happened, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in the fire and they weren't burned up. Kind of cool. Verse three: I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, entire people in exchange for your life. God is saying. I care for you so much, Israel, that I will let these these invading armies carry off entire nations as a warning to you. So Isaiah says, Israel, don't turn to Egypt. Turn to the Lord. And then the Assyrians come and they haul off Egypt. And that's their warning. Oh gosh, we shouldn't have turned to Egypt. We should turn to the Lord. He says, all of Samaria, turn to the Lord. The Assyrians come and they haul off all of Samaria and repopulate it all around. So God is giving entire nations. He's protecting them while all these other nations are getting hauled away just so they'll turn, just so they'll see. Verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. So again, this is one of those, it's uh, encouraging and it's hopeful. God's going to bring everybody together. But then it's a little bit scary because right now when they're reading that, when they're hearing Isaiah say this, they don't have offspring in the east and the west and the north and the south they're all hunkered down in Jerusalem we're all cozy here like if a prophet said I'm going to bring your I'm going to bring your great grandkids back from captivity in Egypt to you in America you'd be like what are you talking about my great grandkids aren't going to be going to Egypt well when they get back they'll be fine right that would be a little jarring a little scary that's what he's saying. He's he's giving them this hope, but he's also saying, I'm giving you hope, but it's going to be really bad, you guys. So it's it's this it's this discipline that's coming, but it's it's love and it's I will still be with you even while you're in it. Um, it, it is the. Uh, you know, one time I was, I think I was like in second grade maybe, and I got, I got in trouble and I had to stay after school. And uh, it was bad to stay after school because that never happened to me before and that was, you know, kind of bad. But part of my going home from school was getting beat up by bullies walking from my school to my babysitter's house. And you know how birds like go in flocks and they evade? Well, there was a whole crowd of us kids that would evade. And, and you didn't have to run faster than the bear, just faster than the other guy, right? But if I had to stay after school, I'm, a, I'm the lone sparrow running home among all the hawks. And uh, that was what upset me about getting held after school. I wasn't upset. I had this mark on my record now. And um, so I'm crying and carrying on. And my teacher... She was a good teacher. She was not harsh and she realized somehow she deciphered that that's why I was scared. That's why I was crying that I had to stay after school. Maybe my mom told her. My mom probably yelled at her. I don't know. Anyway, gave her the what for. So that teacher said, okay, I will make sure you get home fine. And that made everything, you know, I have to stay after school because I was talking or whatever. But That teacher's going to make sure I get home. I'm not going to get beat up by the bullies too. So she walked out with me to the thing and she could see, it was like two blocks to my babysitter's house, but you could see you had line of sight from where she was to that door. And I kept, you know, I never even saw the bullies. They weren't even out there, but she was there with me. That's how, what's God saying? You're going to get Disciplined. You did the, You did wrong. You did wrong, and there's consequences of it. But I'm going to be with you while you go through this. Skip down to verse ten. You are my witnesses. This is Isaiah 43:10. This is God compelling His people. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. So, it's not just that God is disciplining them because he wants to beat them, or he wants, he's like, You guys, you are my people. You are my servant whom I've chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. He's saying, I am the only one. I love um, just different times I've had conversations with people, and sometimes they're a little out there, and they say, you know, how can we know there's only one God? How can we know that there aren't just a dozen? Or how can we know that God's not going to just do creation all over again? And I said, whatever answer you come up with for that, you're departing from the Bible, and you're just making something up. So if you want to have the intellectual honesty that apart from the Bible, whatever answer you come up with is just made up, if you can live with that, then you're going to have to live with that. But the Bible says the Lord's the Lord and there aren't any others. And that gives me a foundation. That gives me something stable. Instead of just living in, I mean, if I'm going to make stuff up, I'm just going to make up all kinds. There's no limit to what I can make up, right? God says, I am the Lord. Besides me, there's no other. He is starting in this section. Remember, he told them not to worship idols. And he talked a little bit about about idols. He's about ready to go really, really in-depth, trying to convince them about idols. But the first thing he's trying to establish is, no, before me, no God was formed. There was no, um, you know. There's all kinds of, of religious stories and religious myths and creation stories in all different tribes, and they worship all kinds of different things. And God is just saying, nothing existed before me. And it's not before me. There was nothing. It's before me. There was nothing. Does that make sense? It's not that there was nothing, and then there was God. It's that God has always been. God has always existed. Always. What was before God? God has always existed, all time, even beyond time. He has always existed. Isaiah 43:12. "I declared and I saved and I proclaimed, when there is no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses. When they were coming through the wilderness out of Egypt, and they got rid of every false god they have, they got rid of every idol, everything that they got from the Egyptians that represented any of the Egyptian gods, they melted down, they turned it into the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant wasn't their god. It wasn't an idol, right? It was just a box that God would sit on with His mercy, sort of. A little mercy seat joke. But... Um, It wasn't an idol. It wasn't God. It was the room where they would meet with God, but it wasn't God. And in that time, God declared himself and he taught them and he trained them. And that's why they are his witnesses. Henceforth, I am he. There's none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? He's saying, I do stuff and no one can stop me. Nobody can undo what God does. Job would say this at the end of the book of Job. He says, uh, nobody can throw off God's plan. Nobody can change God's plan. The, The really wild thing is God himself sometimes changes his plans because he wants to. But it's God doing it by his own desire, not because anybody made him do it. Isn't that wild? The other deepness of this is, who can deliver from my hand? Deliverance is ultimately what we want. We want want to be okay. We want to be safe. That's why um, the the media can sell so many trucks during the coronavirus scare. Because everybody is tuning in to see what's happening. And and crank those ads, crank those ads. Everybody's uh, trying to pay attention to see what's happening and stay on it we want to be delivered. We want that reassurance that we'll be okay. We want to know we're going to be all right. The Lord is the only source of that. The Lord is the only source of any deliverance. But he delivers. He doesn't always deliver the way we want him to deliver. So if Caleb had his way, my son Caleb, he would be able to play video games all day long, and have an endless supply of iced strawberry Pop-Tarts. Okay, that's not fair. If I had my way, I would be able to play video games all day long and eat an endless supply of frozen strawberry, iced strawberry Pop-Tarts. That would be my... Now, I just tell the guys in the mission, if you guys really want to see how greedy and self-centered I am, watch God let me win the lottery. Because then my full selfishness will be unleashed upon the world. God doesn't give us everything we want. He doesn't discipline us because he's mean. But there's this thing that he wants that he knows is him. And there's this thing that we want that he knows is him. The ultimate thing that we want is him. He is the satisfaction of everything we could ever need. Guess, guess how he knows that? Because he created those needs so that we would seek after him. And he made those needs to, that only he would fit it. And so that's why he is our one and only deliverer. And everything else is an idol. So listen to this. This is where the discipline kind of gets real. Uh, Isaiah forty three fourteen. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel For your sake I sent to Babylon and I told them to bring down all the fugitives, the Chaldeans, the ships. He's saying, I'm the one that called out Babylon against you to discipline you. I'm the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. I make a way in the sea, I make a path in the mighty waters. I bring forth the chariot and the horse, the army. He's saying, I, I make all this happen because I want you to need me. I want you to see that you need me. Then skip down to verse 18. Remember not the former things. Don't consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I'll make a way in the wilderness and I'll make rivers in the desert. So that kind of sounds good. God's doing something new. Yeah, but it's the Babylonian captivity is the new thing he's doing. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals, the ostriches. I will give them water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I'll give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself. So he's kind of skipping around back in here. But what he's doing, the new thing that he is doing when they all went to Egypt and they became slaves, they became slaves in the land where they lived. Then they went to the promised land. Now they're going to be forcibly taken away from the promised land and dispersed all over the world. A lot of, a lot of what happened in the Babylonian captivity would become the, the um, sort of the denomination of Judaism that when they came back to Israel under Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what the Pharisees came from. And, that's what, Jesus and uh, that's what Jesus was raised in, was a form of Judaism that was crafted in Babylon during the exile. Isn't that wild to think about? The Apostle Paul, the way the Apostle Paul would talk and reason about Judaism and this King of Glory and the Messiah... And being a, a savior for all the Gentiles, that was formed while they were under Babylonian captivity. That was not some of that thinking wasn't formed in any of this. All the stuff that Isaiah corrected him about did not did not live on. Um, it's it's what happened in Babylon. Pretty wild. So so God's going to do all this discipline. He's going to leave it so that only ostriches, <laughs> only ostrich. What are all the animals? Jackals and ostriches are going to be left in Jerusalem. It's just going to be a, a dump, a no man's land, a wasteland. And he's going to take everybody to Babylon to, be, to really seek after God away from all of that, away from their promised land. All right, let's skip over to chapter 44. So the, when the Babylonian captivity happened, if you look at the Old Testament and you look at all of the kings They always struggled with idolatry. Even Gideon. Remember Gideon? At the start of Gideon's story in the book of Judges, he tears down his dad's idols. But at the end of Gideon's story, he is setting up all of these idols, and he's wearing this ephod, and they're worshiping all this gold stuff again. He went back to idolatry. Um, In... um, when in Numbers, when they had the snake on a pole, the bronze serpent on a pole, and whoever looked at it would be healed of the, of the poisonous snake bites. Later, 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 hundreds of years later, it shows up in the book of Kings, and they're worshiping that bronze serpent like it is a god. It's, they've turned it into an idol. Israel struggles with idolatry all through the Old Testament, Until the Babylonian captivity happens. And when they get hauled off to Babylon. After that, when they come back in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. They're no longer. They're they're still. They still struggle with greed. They still struggle with unforgiveness and legalism. And um, being unmerciful. And they don't take care of the poor. And they don't speak up for widows but they never struggle with the Asherah poles or idolatry again. Isn't that wild? That is finally, once and for all. Some of it might be because of Isaiah 44. So, um, Isaiah 44.9. Isaiah 44, verses 1-8. through 8, God is saying, I am bigger than an idol. Don't worship idols. Isaiah 44.9 God just kind of spells out. Here are the details. All who fashion idols are nothing. The things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither neither see or they know, so they would all be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Who does this? It's worthless. Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen are only humans. People that are making it. They're just men. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They'll be terrified. They'll be put to shame together. And over the, the rest of this whole section, he just plays out the whole process. Look at how you make an idol. You go get some wood. If you're rich, you go get some metal. And you cut it, and you fashion it, and there's scraps. And then you make this thing, and you set it up, and you pray to it like it's going to do something. He was doing this all through 1 through 40 also, right? It sounds like I'm saying the same thing I said the week before, and the week before, the week before, because I am, because Isaiah is saying it over and over. Come on. I love some of these things. He's like, um, can your idol predict the future? Go ahead, ask it. Can your idol tell you what's going to happen next? And so then Isaiah is like, let me show you how Yahweh is better. Let me show you how, how Yahweh can do more. You know all those trees that you cut up and you make idols out of? God made the mountain that all of those trees grow on. So Yahweh is more powerful. Uh, skip down to 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. All you idol makers, can any of you make what God makes in the womb? Right? I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the sign of liars, makes fools of diviners, turns wise men back, and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. There's a thing that we say in our house a lot um, and that's the, the devil always wants to make a fool out of you when you're trying to decide something or discern something. And um, you know, sometimes the kids are trying, you know, like Isaac's trying to make these decisions about mission trips and, and uh, you know, David's getting ready to graduate from high school and discerning things. Sometimes if you get this idea, I know I want to drive around the Oscar Meyer Wienermobile for a year. Sometimes stuff is unwise, sometimes it's just flat out dumb, foolish, right? The devil wants to make you look like a fool. And he wants to amplify that. And I know sometimes following Jesus looks foolish. Like if I forgive somebody that did me wrong and an onlooker says, that is so foolish, why would you forgive them? You should punch them in the face. You should sue them for all they've got, you know, whatever. There's another kind of foolish that the devil really capitalizes on. He wants wants to make us look foolish. He wants to make us look stupid. And that's what God is saying right here. He's like, if you follow an idol, you will just look stupider than stupid. You will end up with nothing. Uh, A modern version of this is, is the guy that works 160 hours a week to get rich. And the end of his life, what has he got? He's got this big old trust fund and nobody likes him. The devil made him look like a fool, right? The the devil capitulated on that foolishness of his greed. Further down in Isaiah 44. Let's say Isaiah is just saying this stuff and he's writing it and he's prophesying. He's talking about God who makes this, and he creates that. Isaiah forty four twenty seven. He says to the deep, be dry, and he'll dry up your rivers. And you're like, yeah, Red Sea, crossing the Jordan. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will fulfill all my purpose. What? Wait a minute, who's Cyrus? You would be thrown for a loop, because he just called out this name. He says of Cyrus, he will be my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. Now remember, just a little while back, God said, I'm going to make Jerusalem a farm for ostriches and jackals. The only thing that's going to be there is wild animals. There's going to be so few people in Jerusalem that the whole city could live off of one cow's milk. Remember, that was two or three weeks ago. And then he says right in the middle of it, Cyrus As my shepherd, he will fulfill my purpose. Isaiah 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed one, Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may be closed. He starts talking about Cyrus. Well, Cyrus was going to come to power in 559 B.C. Five fifty nine, And it's B.C., so we count down, right? Isaiah is saying all of this between 740 and 686. So from 740 to 686 is the life of Isaiah. And then Isaiah dies, probably saw it in half because the kings didn't like what he was saying. 686. 560, so... Basically, 120 years later, Cyrus comes to power. So Cyrus may have not even been al- probably wasn't even alive when Isaiah was alive. I, Cyrus was certainly never heard of while Isaiah was alive. And Isaiah is prophesying by name the king that God is going to use. And he's not a king of Israel. He says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings. Cyrus was a powerful king. He had enough power uh, that he overthrew Babylon. The Babylonian Empire that overthrew the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire that overthrew Jerusalem. And, um, you know. They took all the land around Jerusalem, was the Assyrians, and the Babylonians came in took everything that was Assyrians and more. Cyrus, king of Persia, would take over all of that. He would rule over all of that. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and the secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. He's calling him by name 150 years before he would ever be in power. Now, Isaiah is totally showing off God in this, right? This is like Elijah and the 400 priests of Baal when Elijah was like, shout louder, maybe your gods are sleeping. Isaiah is saying, ask your idols what the name is of the king that 150 years from now is going to restore this land. Do your idols know? Because Yahweh says it's Cyrus. Cyrus. And not only does Yahweh know the name of the king, but Yahweh is actually helping that king to do all of this to establish his plan. So not only do your idols are not able to predict the future and are not able to speak, but Yahweh knows the future because he's the author of it. He is creating the future. Not only can he predict it, but he can make it so and and write it. Skip down to uh, Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me. The you in this is Cyrus. He's telling Cyrus, I'm equipping you. You don't even know who I am. So that the people would know from the rising of the sun from the west west that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, it could be a little scary to read that God creates light and darkness, He makes well-being, and He creates calamity. If that was all you read, and that was all you knew of God, that He brings calamity. He can bring good and well-being and create calamity. You could be scared of him, right? But we've just had about 44 chapters of him saying, I love you. I love you. I have created you. I've called you by name. I care about you. And so we don't have to be afraid of any calamity that he brings because before Bigger than the calamity that he would bring is his love for us and his goodness. His closeness. A few years ago, we went to, uh, on vacation to visit our friends in Fort Collins, Colorado. And if you've ever been to Colorado, everybody freaks out about high-altitude sickness and everybody's worn out. Oh, we're exhausted. High-altitude sickness. Well, the other thing is we're going to go visit these friends who are like fitness fanatics and they cycle everywhere. Their kids don't want to ride the bus to school. They want to ride their bikes. And so they're biking all over the place and they're always walking up all these mountains. And like, my exercise is a double cheeseburger. (laughs) And so for weeks before our trip to Colorado... We would do our Saturday morning, you know, farm stand, whatever. And I'd be like, all right, guys, come on. We're walking to Zesto. So we would walk miles to Zesto and get our double cheeseburger. And then we would walk miles back to Aiken Park and run around Aiken Park. And then we would walk another mile back to our house. Oh, everybody's exhausted. What was I doing? It was miserable. But I was preparing them so that when we went on vacation to Fort Collins, it wouldn't be so miserable. Right? At that time, Caleb rose up and said, Dad, why have you brought such calamity upon us? I wasn't just being cruel, right? I'm doing, we're doing strengthening and conditioning to get ready to go on this vacation. So we're not miserable on our vacation. We were still miserable on our vacation. The calamity was not great enough. No. We can trust him. He loves us. He's not bringing pain upon us just pointlessly. We live in a fallen world. All of creation wants to kill us. All, everything in this sinful world, it's not, it's not our sin. You know, uh, I didn't let that guy into traffic, and so now I'm afflicted with boils. It's not like that. It's, it's just the whole world is in a state of fallenness, so stuff doesn't work right. Stuff is in rebellion against God. But God is with us and he loves us in this. And he's loving us through it. He says, "Shower, oh, This is uh, Isaiah 45, 8. Shower, O oh heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. God wants righteousness to show up in the midst of all of these hardships. In the midst of the calamities, in the midst of difficulties, God wants his righteousness to be shown off and to show, to be visible. I I have never talked to my friends about the Lord so much I've not talked to my neighbors about the Lord so much as when hardship falls upon my neighbors. And then they want to know things about the Lord. Why this? Why does this happen? How does this explain? You know, tell me. Um, let's let's see. We can skip down some. This is all that he's saying. He's prophesying. Oh, 14. 14. Uh, Isaiah 45, 14. The wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and they'll bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides Him. There is a time, it comes up numerous places in Scripture, there is something about whether it's the, the end of the world, whether it's heaven, something about all of our enemies, which is like the devil, right, and his demons and, and just evil, the personification of evil, all realizing what is true and 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 seeing it all. And we get to see that. Sometimes it happens in real life. Somebody that disagreed with you about something, you pray for them. Um, somebody that was in the wrong, somebody that was sinning, maybe against someone else, and you witnessed it, or they're sinning against you. Sometimes it happens, and God changes them, and they come to you and they say, This happened. I am sorry. I need forgiveness. I, I repent of this. Sometimes it's cosmic. Let's skip all the way down to um, this is good. Verse 22, chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. He's been saying this all over the place. I am God, there is no other. In that whole passage I just skipped, he talks about how he hides himself so we will seek after him. He hides himself sometimes so we will seek after him so that when we find him, we love him. We really appreciate him. We really, yes. By myself, this is verse 23, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness... A word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's, Paul quotes that in Philippians, right? Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord shall all the offspring of Israel will be justified and shall glory. We don't deal with idols the way Israel dealt with idols. We don't, um, you know, you come over to my house and I don't say, hey, come in here and look. And there's this big old gold, ugly gold thing that's like, "No, yeah. like here, let's take a minute and pray to this. We, it's not that blunt, right? It's not that horrible. But there are things that we struggle with sometimes that we value over the Lord. Or that we value over our friendships and our relationships. That we value over... A little submission. Uh, There's a thing that I want. James talks about this. There's a thing that I want, and I want it. And I don't get it, and so I murder somebody. Okay, I don't really murder somebody, but I I get upset, right? Or I daydream about how it would be if it would have worked out differently. And now suddenly I'm not even in reality anymore. Idolatry shows up in all of those ways. And the Lord is saying over and over in here, I'm the Lord, there is no other. Don't seek after an idol. Don't seek to be satisfied by any other thing. Seek me. Isaiah doesn't pull any punches. In Isaiah 46, he starts calling them out by name. These are the names of the idols that people were carving. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Uh, so this is a joke. This is a joke. He's saying, your idols are so weak, you have to pick it up and put it on a donkey to carry it. Your idol is so weak, it has to be hauled around by a donkey. Like, how powerful can it be? What, what power of deliverance does it have if it can't even move itself around? And you have to have a, a stubborn donkey to, to haul it. Here we are, right, with our idols. If, if, um, if we're trusting in our riches, it only takes a week for the stock market to just completely obliterate itself, right? And now we're, oh, gosh, this thing that I was trusting in is just worthless, right? Um, we, we have this with our kids. The first time they buy something that's like really expensive, And then it breaks. You're like, oh, you know, this conflict of um, it was fun to have that thing. You know, it was fun to have that drone, but it just crashed into a tree and obliterated itself into like four hundred and twenty three parts. Yeah. You know, what what do you do with that? Um, Is is it there's a place where Jesus says, use the things of this world like they belong to this world and they don't belong to you. You, you know, it's not wrong to use stuff in this world for the kingdom. But don't let it use you. Don't let it own you. Gosh. Chapter 46 is almost a repeat of chapter 43. So I'm going to skip it. Um, he's saying the same kinds of things. That God is the God. He is with you. He loves you. But idols aren't going to stand. Now, he's mentioned Cyrus in a couple places. And there, there are some Jewish traditions that Jews in the captivity showed some of the writings of Isaiah to Cyrus to show him that he was going to fulfill this thing. Funny things about Cyrus, unlike the Babylonians, unlike the Assyrians, the religion that Cyrus had believed that there was only one True God, that there weren't multiple gods; that there was only one, and he believed in um, that there was one true God and there was one evil, and that the Assyrians didn't believe anything like anything at all like what the Jews believed. But Cyrus's belief it was a Zoroastrianism and Persian Persian religion. Um, It was close to what the Jews believed, that there was only one God. It was was very rare to have monotheism. So there was some stuff that Cyrus kind of listened to the Jews about, and and he considered it. Well, all of chapter 47 is a curse on Babylon. And Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, is what Cyrus conquered and destroyed and took over and made into the Persian empire. So when it says things about in Isaiah 47 about Babylon being destroyed at the hand of Cyrus and Cyrus 150 years later would read this and see it, that, that would be reaching out to him. That would be speaking to him. We don't know what happened. I mean, we know some of what happened, but we don't know what happened in Cyrus's soul, right? We don't know what happened in his heart, but, um, But that's what all of 47 is saying. Disaster is going to come upon the Babylonians. This would be encouragement for the Jews because the Babylonians are the ones destroying them. And you want to hear that the people that are destroying you are going to get destroyed. But then 150 years later, it would be encouragement for Cyrus because he already did it. And this is proving that it was written before Cyrus did it. You can, um, you, know, you, can, you can look around in uh, 47, verse 8. He is, he is calling out Babylon. Therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. Babylon thought, they started to rewrite the history books. And they started to say, Babylon always was. And they, they wiped out all their history of, of what led to become Babylon. They were like, we've always existed. We've always been powerful. We'll last forever. And um, verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, there's, I am, there's no one besides me. But evil will come upon you. You will not know how to charm away disaster that will fall upon you. For which you will not be able to atone, ruin will come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And that was Cyrus. He was that destruction that came upon Babylon. All right. Finally, skip over to chapter 48. Um, so I said we don't know what happened. We don't know what happened with Cyrus's, you know, did Cyrus become a Jew? Did he call him the name of Yahweh? Not really. That's not recorded anywhere, but there, there's evidence that he cared about the Jews. and um, he cared about a lot of, a lot of the nations that the Babylonians had hauled off to, from different places and conquered. Cyrus sent them back to their homelands. Uh, there's, there's historical record of this. It wasn't just the Jewish people that he sent back to their homelands, but that we have recorded of the Jewish people getting sent back in the book of Ezra Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. And that's where King Cyrus, king of Persia, funds, pays for the temple to be rebuilt and the wall, temple to be rebuilt in the book of Ezra and the wall around Jerusalem to be rebuilt in the book of Nehemiah. That's where all of that happens. All of this, these prophecies come true. Over a A century and a half later. All right. Isaiah 48. He's saying again, listen, you're my, you're called by my name. You came, you swear by my name. You confess me as your God. I'm yours. We, we are together. And he's, he's trying to renew this bond and get, get back to this conversation. Verse three, the former things I declared of old, they went from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you're obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is like brass. <laughs> you know, sometimes we might talk to somebody and just be like, they are not getting it. Like their heart is so hardened. They are not opening up. This is the same kind of language that God and Isaiah are using to the Jewish people. Your foreheads, like... I was talking, and it was just like a big brass plate was your forehead. That's how hard-headed, you know, we'll say, Dan is so hard-headed, right? Jim, I have heard you say that about yourself. I am hard-headed, right? Now you can quote scripture be like, my forehead's like brass sometimes. He says their neck, their neck was like iron. So what does that mean? Well, because they wouldn't bow. They were they were proud. They would not submit to God. And he's saying, I called all this out before it happened. Skip all the way down to verse nine. For my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you that I may not be cut off. I have refined you, but not like silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. We can trust that God will win. We can trust that God will be glorified and he will have his, his greatness shown. And the truth is, we're all going to follow something. Everybody we know, everybody we talk to is following something. And it's, it's this picture in their head of what they think life is and how life should be lived. And the more we know about God, the more we seek Him out, and the more we get to know Him, the more we align with Him, right? The more we follow in His ways versus living a life of make-believe. Versus making stuff up, making up words from idols, making up words from, from fear, We can look back on history and see where God was faithful. That's what he's calling them to at the very end of 48. They didn't thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow from them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. One of the best things you can do when you're trying to follow God is to look at where God has taken you in the past. Repeat those stories. Tell those stories to one another about how God delivered from this, how God helped with that, how God... Answered this prayer. That's why a lot of times during prayer time, I will talk about something that we prayed for that came true, that happened, that God did, that God answered, right? It's to build up our faith as we go, as we go forward and we go ahead. So next week, we've been talking about Cyrus. We've been talking about God being close. Um, It's really fun. If you pictured this week as being all about God the Father, next week is going to be all about God the Son. And it's in this progression of what Isaiah is talking about and what he's trying to get everybody to know. This week has been a lot about I've created you. I created the mountains that all, all the gold that you use for your idols came from a mountain that I created. I created that mountain. The wood that you're getting, I created. The stars that you worship in the sky... I made those stars. God, the, the Father, the Creator that calls you by name has been uh, the emphasis of this week. Stay tuned, next week will be fun because he really does. He goes right into to God the Son that came for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can trust in your word and in your prophecies. That we can trust that you really do know what's going to happen in the future because you are making it and you're creating it, just like you created us in our mother's wombs and you, you created uh, the kingdom of heaven that we would grow into and come to know. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this week, that you would guide us, that you would reveal to us our idols and that You would reveal to us even more how You call us by name, that we belong to You. That we would adhere to You and cling to You and let everything else drop out of our hands that isn't You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing number 175 together. on the promises of Christ my King through each other praise